coming up on this episode of Leap Takers. In order to grow our network here very quickly, we wanted to do something that would make some noise about us and showcase our skill sets. And like you asked about how, how do you get clients? Well, we thought, okay, a great way to get clients would be to organize something which you know shows off all the different things we can do, the marketing, the community building, the, the stakeholder engagement. And so we organized a food hackathon. And that's where food hack comes from. Hello, everyone. I'm happy to bring you a new episode today of the Leap Takers podcast, where I'm interviewing up and coming European entrepreneurs, investors and shapers from various fields to retrace their journey of how they started their own company, their side projects or whatever they're working on, and then to discover their insights, tips, tricks and advice they gathered for you so that you too can take the leap. My guest today is Arman Anaturk. He is the founder and CEO of Foodhack. Foodhack is a community-driven platform that inspires, highlights and connects food entrepreneurs and innovators. So with Foodhack, Arman is building like a 21st century media and events company for the food tech industry. Their platform includes a weekly food and food tech newsletter, a food discovery board, think of something like the product hunt of food, so where you can find innovative food tech startups and cool new products that were launched. And Foodhack also hosts ambassador-run meetups in many cities around the world. And they also host an annual Foodhack Summit. Arman also hosts the Secret Sauce podcast, where he provides insights through interviews with food industry leaders. So you can also check that out if you're interested after this episode. So in today's episode, we cover many exciting topics, including how Armand founded and grew Foodhack to become one of the leading food and technology media companies out there. We cover how to do cold outreach correctly, the impact of food and how our perception is changing around that, the newest trends in the food tech space, tools you can use to start and run your own small startup or website and much more. So without further ado, Please enjoy this conversation with Arman Anaturk. Hey, Arman, welcome to the Leap Takers podcast. Uh, it's really great to have you on the show today. And I'm really curious to learn more in this episode about your journey and what you've been building. So if you could get started just with you providing a quick intro about yourself and who you are, that would be great. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Happy to talk about my journey and what I've been doing. Yeah, I'm the co-founder of this company called Foodhack. We're a food tech media and events company. We make food tech easier to digest and make it more accessible to anyone around the world who wants to learn more about how to get into food tech, how to launch a business in food tech, or how to invest or find the white spaces and market opportunities in the food category. Yeah, and just to give some background to the listeners as well, I came across Food Hack as well because of your newsletter, which is really cool if you want to just learn a bit about what's happening in the food space, new interesting products that are coming out. So that's also something I definitely want to learn more about today. Before we get there, I'm always curious to learn more from my guests how you became interested in startups and also for you in how you became interested in the food tech space. Could you tell us a bit more about that, how you got interested? Definitely. So uh, I take this in twofold. I mean, my introduction to startups was really by chance. I was studying architecture. So I, I had always had the dream of flipping houses. I don't know if you, you, you don't do that in Switzerland much, but because of the way that the, the system is set up here, but essentially 
it's the idea of buying houses, renovating them, and then selling them for, for you know, for a higher price than what you bought it. And that, that, that was always my dream as a kid. I grew up watching these housing renovation projects on TV, and that's what I wanted to pursue in life. I started architecture in, in the UK. That's what I was studying. And I really thought that that's what I was going to do. But after a year of studying, I realized that something didn't fit right. Something didn't feel right. In the UK, I had to pay for university. Luckily, the first year I had a scholarship. The second year going in, I didn't have a full scholarship. So I had to start paying my fees. And, and then I was thinking, okay, now I have to put on student loans. I have to ask this from my family. And I had, for architecture, you have seven years of studies. So that's seven years of, of student loan building up. During this summer break, one of my high school friends, he offered me the opportunity to work with him in his startup. It was a coding school. There was multiple things going on at the time, but I'll just focus on one. It was a coding school. And so I joined him and we started teaching people how to program web and iOS development courses. This internship that was meant to last two months was my first introduction to the startup world. I got to attend events in London, see pitching conferences, you know, see really deep dive into the startup ecosystem of London in a very short time frame from the perspective of an intern, from the perspective of an event attendee. And I got hooked instantly. You know, I, this to me was far more exciting and interesting than what I was doing in my studies. And I was also getting paid as an intern or and but had, not much, but I had the prospect of getting paid a little bit more. And I could see my direct value equaling to revenue towards the company. And I think this instant gratification of putting in the work and making cash for the company would just I got addicted to it. And once that internship was, was over, I was made an offer to, to stay on. And I essentially dropped out of university, much to the dismay of my family, who are very academic focused. Academia is what brought them out of their situation. They're both you know, Turkish immigrants that worked very hard, studied very hard. My dad was top of his school. That's how he, he made it out of his position to be able to you know, provide for our family. So they, they weren't too happy about that, but I, I told them this is what I was going to do. I was going to save them money in the long run and I, I would pay back the favor. In, and that, that was my real introduction to the startup world back in, back, back, I think 2014 was when it, when it happened. Wow. Very interesting story. And thanks for giving some glimpses how, how it was for you and also for your family. Which, yeah, definitely sometimes is not that easy to understand. And I think by now, the mindset has also shifted a bit of becoming an entrepreneur, especially in Europe. I think maybe 10 years ago or so, it was not as common of a path as it's today. But it's still not, you know, what maybe your parents <laughs> want you to do. Yeah, but very interesting. And so you mentioned this was like 2014, something like that. What was like the next steps after you weren't doing this coding school? How long did you do that? And where did your path lead next? Mm -hmm. So this coding school, I did with my friend for about two years. Eventually, it gave us a great exposure to the London tech ecosystem. We grew our network very well in a short period of time. And I was focused on the marketing side. So I was really doing a lot of outreach. I learned a skill, which was cold emails and cold outreach. Every day I was sending about two, 300 messages to people asking, inviting them, you know, to come to our courses. 
And I, I was really just building up my skill set from marketing to sales to branding to communication uh, to pitching, really just acquiring the bulk of my knowledge that, that I that I got today. And I think the, the attitude as well, you should see how many times I got rejected, how many people said some not so nice messages back. You know, of course, I was I was reaching out to them in, in a cold message. Anyways, if, if I may just interject quickly, how like that's a huge number of messages as well. Like kind of what tools did you use or where did you reach out to them on like on LinkedIn or how did you do that to get this, this volume? Yeah, so so you can't do that these days. Why? Because there's a bit of a block on LinkedIn. They, they fixed their uh, system. But back then, all you had to do, LinkedIn and Facebook were the two routes I used to do this. And both have both of them have fixed their ways of doing this. But I just had a message essentially. Hey, John, I run a coding course on the weekends that teach people how to program in just two days. If you're interested, I'd be happy to share more information. Best Armin. And then you take that message and you just find the Facebook group, London Startups, and you essentially just message every single person there, just changing the first name. And in a day, depending on how dedicated you are and how many hours you work, you can get through two to 300 people. There are other people on our team. Maybe they didn't get as many. I think I was sending the record, but that's it. Today, you can't do that because it'll be a block, but there are other workaround tools that you can use to mass email people and mass approach people. I just find some of these tools sometimes have issues associated with them. So I prefer to take the manual routes. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating how to do the cold outreach as well, because it's definitely a skill you need to learn as well and how to get the best conversion and people responding. Absolutely. Building on that, actually, we get everyone on the team today to do a bit of cold outreach. It's especially important here in Switzerland, I think, with our Swiss hires, because it's a skill that we realized isn't taught the the outreach of just messaging someone out of the blue and it's something that i think is really makes or breaks uh, an entrepreneur in the early days you can reach anyone you want pretty much anyone you want if you just try hard enough there's their contact is online or their contact is reachable through someone in your network and your business can grow so quick if you can just learn the skill of cold outreach so we we put everyone through that that task when they join our company I think it's a very good way to do. And as you said, it's not something you learn in school at all. It's yeah, something you need to learn yourself. Yeah. Good, but you were saying, so you kind of did this cold outreach. And so what, what happened next? Yeah, so the company was growing I and mean, we're growing steadily. We're doing these weekend courses. We, we shifted also a bit to doing some, some corporate courses, which further grew our, our network. But there was a bit of an internal issue. Myself and my co-founder weren't getting along too well. And eventually, long story short, we just had different visions of where the company would go and we went different ways. Luckily at this time, I mean, that happens, right? One of the major reasons why startups fail in the early days is because the team doesn't agree or the team, you know, internal issues. So I think it was a great lesson to learn from early on that you have to pick your team right. And luckily at this period of time, I, I met now co-founder, Kemi, who's, who's a Swiss. She's from uh, Lausanne or just, just nearby in Provence. And uh, I met her and we started working on a, on a project together. She, was, she has a background in design and, and branding and communication. And so I had landed a client in the FMCG sector who needed us to organize a hackathon. And so that was my first experience at really working on a client projects. In order to, to organize that event, 
way to set up a structure. We ended up quickly launching an agency, which we named One Roof, One Roof Agency. And under that, we ran, organized a hackathon for them. And since that day, actually, even today, that agency is, is actually my primary business that I do. I don't mention it to many people. It's, it's more of my the background thing that, that, that really keeps the, you know, the lights on and keeps everything running. But right off the back of the, the, the coding course company, we launched that agency. Uh, we landed that client. And since then, we've been doing client projects in the FMCG sector for food science projects. And was this like, a, you know, kind of a random coincidence that you landed in, in this area? Or were you consciously making the decision, I want to work in that field? It was completely random. I think almost everything I've done up to that point has been random. I met my co-founder in a very random way. I, I met her whilst traveling in, in Marrakesh on Christmas Day. I <laughs> invited her to work with me on a random project. That project fell through, landed this FMTG client, and and everything just snowballed. You know, I never knew what I wanted to do. It, it, and this is something that I think a lot of entrepreneurs think you need to know. They, they, they feel they need to have a strong vision or idea of where they want to go. I've only until recently not known where I wanted to go. I've just been figuring out along the way. And uh, yeah, so it, it's been a random. This might be a bit of a weird question and you don't need to answer, but like, how did you land this first client? Like, how did it work? Because when I had my business before, I really struggled to get my first client. And I think, especially if you're younger, you don't have such a huge network yet. Like, how did it happen for you that you got your first client? Because of the line of work we were in, in the coding courses, we were, we were doing the coding courses when it was very trendy. Everyone wanted to learn how to code. And that opened the door to the corporate sector. My co-founder at the time was actually an extremely good networker. And I learned a lot from him in terms of how to reach out to executives. And, and he was doing exactly that. So he actually was able to open the door to this corporate client and started the conversation. And essentially one thing led to another and that led to the, this hackathon. The reason why they were interested in us is because the two years that we were running these coding classes, we were also staying connected to the tech ecosystem. We had built up actually a very good network of universities, tech hubs across London and the UK of, of, of talented people who they wanted the access. And we were the intermediary between the two, the corporate sector and the startup entrepreneurial world. Great. I, I think, yeah, it's always really cool to get, you know, the actual insights of how people get their first clients and to see how it really happened. So thanks for sharing that. Now, moving on a bit to the company you started and then also to Food Hack, which is what you're probably known for most today. Could you describe to the audience again, maybe a bit more in detail, what is Food Hack? And then following on that, how you moved then from organizing these hackathons to starting Food Hack? Absolutely. So Food Hack today is, is a media and events company for the food and food tech industry. So what we're trying to do is make the industry more accessible to everyone as a whole. How I got into it is that as a result of the agency, one, we ended up moving out of London shortly after the hackathon, just because we felt that the market was getting quite saturated and we had actually gotten quite tired of working there. So myself and my co-founder, who at this point is worth noting, is also my wife. Congrats. So, <laughs> and so with the two of us, we decided we weren't married at that point. We were just working together and, and moving around. We felt that uh, we needed to move into a different market. 
London was getting a bit saturated. There was maybe not enough opportunities for us. We, we traveled around and then we eventually landed back in Switzerland where Cami is from. And in order to grow our network here very quickly, we wanted to do something that would make some noise about us and showcase our skill sets. And like you asked about how, how do you get clients? Well, we thought, okay, a great way to get clients would be to organize something which you know shows off all the different things we can do, the marketing, the community building, the, the stakeholder engagement. And so we organized a food hackathon and that's where food hack comes from. So, you know, I think it was 2016, we organized this food hack, Geneva, first food hackathon we did, bringing together 60 different people from across Switzerland, specifically targeting food waste and food, food emissions reductions, because that was a thematic that the Swiss government was pushing quite heavily that year. And it's something that we've always wanted to do. We already were working with some food-related clients in the agency, and we just wanted to build up that sector even more. So there's two ways that we validated whether we should focus on food. One was out of personal interest. And two, did we see an opportunity in this sector? And we actually just asked a Facebook group. There's a Facebook group called Swiss Startup Scene. And we said, which category should we do a hackathon in? Food waste, uh, I think it was something like AI, something, something else I can't remember. And then by far the most voted one was food waste reduction. And that was it. That was our market validation for do a food hackathon. That's all we had to do. So all, all that to say, the hack started as a result of one, trying to grow our agency, but two, personal interest, because we saw an opportunity that the food and food tech community, especially in Switzerland, we felt was lacking sold effort to bring entrepreneurs together and startups together and the, the whole ecosystem to really collaborate on innovative projects. So would you say today that the, the agency and the work you do there for client is still the major part of your business? Or do you think that all the other things you're doing nowadays, like uh, the newsletter and the, the whole website, the platform where you have like food startups, like, like kind of product hunt for food startups, is that something you also use to generate revenue or that you see as really part of the business? Or is this more, you know, kind of a side product of what you do with, with the agency? Yeah. So today the agency is definitely the bread and butter. I mean, it's, it's grown to something that, you know, we're able to hire a full team. We're able to we work with amazing clients across the Swiss food industry and we work on some really exciting projects, but food hack is really the fun, crazy startup that keeps us. That's also our, our we treat it as a startup. So, you know, we're able to take high risk there. Whereas the agency is, is more of a, a safe business model. It does bring in revenue because we have the events, we have the memberships, we have the advertising through the different channels. But what the agency allows us to do, it, when you're in the media and events industry, it's a difficult model to monetize from the get-go unless you put advertising or something there, which we feel would jeopardize the quality of what you're doing. So what we've tried to do is balance it out by, you know, using the agency revenue to basically fund food hack without having to take out outside the funding. And that allows us to do pretty much whatever we want with food hack. We don't have anyone telling us how to run it. We're able to write our own narrative. You might, you see in our newsletters, we're very open and free in the way we write. And we don't want to be dictated by uh, any players telling us how we should and shouldn't 
speak on what we should and shouldn't cover. And I think that freedom of, of speech and that freedom of, of being able to, to launch and do things has attracted people to food hack and is one of the reasons behind, you know, our perceived, you know, success of food hack today. Yeah. Like from, from what I can tell, yeah, it's also that people really like to read it because it's, yeah, you're independent and you, you have your own opinion on the things you write. And I think that's, really something people appreciate and also the style of like the whole look of, of the newsletter etc it's really well done so it's young and modern i think the look so I, I really like that and you alluded to before already kind of what the newsletter does but maybe you could elaborate a bit more on what you typically include in the newsletter who is your target audience and maybe also some stats like kind of how many readers you have if you want to share Definitely. Maybe I should give some background on the, the Food Act model and how we set it up briefly. So a after this one hackathon, we realized that there was an interest for these food, food and food tech related events. From there, people started reaching out to us saying whether they could also organize Food Act events. And this actually led on to our first licensee. So someone said, can I organize Food Act events in Zurich? And that was uh, Daria Daria Reich, who now has her own startup, Agrinorm. And from there, we just started licensing the Food Hack brand so that ambassadors could start organizing their local events, the Food Hack events in their cities. And today we're in 16 different cities, everywhere from Zurich to Stockholm to Brussels. And we just opened up in Vancouver and Delhi recently. This year, we really have a, a strategy to open up in the APAC region and in the U.S., And this was a very organic way to grow the food hack brand and, and community without the need to put in too much resources at the same time. And it really highlighted to us, okay, there's something deeper here. Food entrepreneurs clearly want to get together. Food entrepreneurs clearly need a, a safe space to get together, to find partners, to find investors, to find co-packers, to find, you know, you, we were talking very briefly before this, where am I going to find my manufacturer? Where am I going to find my co-founder? That's exactly the point of what these first meetups were for. And we found such a high success at these, at these meetups and events. And that format has just taken off. As a result of these meetups, we then launched the newsletter. The newsletter came after the meetups. It was like, okay, well, we have all these events going on. What's happening at them and what are we seeing? Let's, let's dissect that a bit. Here's the key trends that we're seeing um, here's the key news that's happening. And over time, that newsletter just evolved to be more of here's the top food and food tech news of the week digested into an easy to read format so that anyone, whether they're an industry insider or not, can be able to understand what's happening in the sector in under five minutes. From there, we've launched a few other products we launched the, the membership. That's more exclusive insights that we found where we think if you're going to launch a business, invest in a business or looking for the next a big thing in food, here's the specific insights that we found, you know, meal kits, frozen food, the autonomous uh, robots inside of the, the kitchen, all these different sectors. And then obviously as a startup, we like to throw in a bunch of other fun stuff throughout there. So during the pandemic, when, when our events were possible. We launched this thing called the discovery board because we weren't able to highlight as many startups as possible. We, we just wanted to find a way to do it online. And we launched this discovery, which is pretty much product hunt of food. And that's been working really well for us. 
Awesome. I think it's so cool that, that you have this discovery for food startups because it hasn't been done before. And I always really enjoy checking out in your newsletter, the new startups and seeing what's happening in the space. But maybe I should, I didn't answer your question about the stats. Yeah. So today we're open in, in 16 different chapters. Like I said, across that, we have about 40, 45 different ambassadors who, who have the license in terms of discovery board. So discovery board grew quite quickly. We launched that in July and we have just over, over 7,000 users on there with I think 15,000 votes generated and something like, if I'm not wrong to say, somewhere between 150 to 200 products featured. In terms of subscribers, we have 5,000 subscribers on our main mailing list. I know that's why, because today we hit 5,000 and uh, it's not a massive amount, but the, the reason why I know this is because I had a bit of an issue with our mailing service because it obviously went on to the next upgrade level. I had to pay for up to, uh, to upgrade my my, my mailing provider and I paid for it, but unfortunately the accountant activate and I had a newsletter to send in two hours time, our weekly newsletter. So I ended up cold outreaching to every single person at the company, all the executives, all the people across everywhere because the customer service was down. And anyways, an hour before, an hour before sending, I got to sort it out. And that's the story of hitting 5,000. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, congrats to the 5,000. I think that's a really good milestone to hit. And I saw your newsletter in my inbox today. I haven't read it yet, but <laughs> it looks like it worked. So all good. And since you talked about the service providers for newsletters as well, I was interested to learn a bit more about that because I think it's nowadays it's a viable business model, like as a solo entrepreneur to run a newsletter business and it becomes more and more popular. Maybe you have a favorite tool to use or any, you know, tips from your experience for people that want to run their own newsletter. So th these are the business tools that we use today that, that, you know, power our business today. I'd say Webflow, we use Webflow a lot. It's what powers our websites. It's pretty much coding made easy. You can build any website on there. It's great, but it's also limited. But if anyone wants to build a web app, I'd highly recommend they check that out. In order to use Webflow, we also have Zapier. Zapier is basically, you know, makes things happen across different platforms. So in order to, for someone to vote on one of the products on our website, that's one service provider. And you, Zapier basically zaps that to the database in the back that makes the vote happen on the other side. So I don't know if that's a clear explanation, but check out Zapier. Eventbrite, we use that for our ticketing because the events still happen, you know, the, the, the meetups still happen. It's not my favorite tool. I don't recommend it. And I'm still looking for a, a another service provider. So if anyone has a recommendation, please email me or message me. Canva, we use Canva to create designs. Zoom, obviously, that's one. Active campaigns is what we use to send our emails. It's a good email service provider tool to handle a high load of emails, though there's others in the market that you can check out. Did you ever look at like Substack or Ghost or something for the newsletter? Those ones I did look at. I think they, they're not made for media companies, I'd say, too much. Maybe they're more made for individuals. But I, I, may, I didn't give them too detailed of a look. So if you'd recommend them, I'll take it. Take yeah, but uh, you're right. I think they're more for people that have their own personal newsletter or want to monetize their own newsletter. I guess for companies, yeah, it's maybe not the best choice. You're right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then as for other stack, you know, we use Slack, Google Docs, 
hunter.io to find emails. So if you want to find anyone's email, use hunter.io. Yeah, I use that uh, myself as well. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> and then for any Swiss people out there, Bexio for accounting software, it makes your accounting pretty easy. Cool. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I think, you know, there's so many tools out there. Sometimes it's really hard to find the best one for your own use case or what you need. So it's great to learn from others what, what they're using. And yeah, I would say you, you definitely mentioned some of my top tools as well that, that I would use. So I was wondering, how did you grow your newsletter to, you know, the amount of subscribers you have with 5,000 now? Is this mainly coming from your meetups or did you follow any specific tactics or strategies how to grow your subscriber base? The newsletter subscription growth, we haven't been very strategic about it. It grew quite organically in the beginning. I mean, we don't even have a referral button. I only just added a view online button. And so I think we did hinder its growth quite a bit in, in, in the beginning. I think it's just word of mouth. We tried to iterate it as much as possible based on people's feedback. And I think that's what people appreciate. So no specific strategy. Here's the things that we do that work that other people can do. We, every time I post a newsletter, I make a web copy of it on our website, foodhack.global. And you'll find the This Week in Food. And on the very top of there, you'll find the sign up for the newsletter as well. And then I share these via my personal LinkedIn and on the company LinkedIn as well. And I tag all the different companies that we feature. Because we're doing a recap of the news, we're curating news and we're tagging, you know, this company raised this amount, this company did this, this company did this. And that makes it highly shareable and, and engaged post that people click on and people tend to like to share with others. And that leads to, I believe it's growth. Another tactic is, well, not a tactic, but something that we've seen since we've launched the discovery board, our user growth for our newsletter has gone up significantly. And I think that's just attributed to the fact that we've had so many more website visitors coming to, to, our, to our platform. Final thing, final, final little hack that I do. Every time I add someone, a lot of people add, add, people add me on LinkedIn. And instead of wasting the opportunity to, to just say, you know, accept, I accept and I say, hey, thanks for adding me. Here's my newsletter if you want to subscribe. Friday, food tech news of the week summarized. P.S. What are you working on? That's, that's a nice one. <laughs> I think that I've never seen someone doing that. So that's a really good tip, actually. Since we talked a lot about food hack now and what you're doing with, with your business, one thing I was very interested to chat about with you as well is kind of your view on the whole food tech space. And since you're pretty much every day confronted with, with what's happening in the food tech space and food innovation, so what do you think are currently the most important trends happening right now in the food tech space that, that you are interested in? I think maybe most generally is increased consumer awareness of the impacts of food on the environment as a whole. So I think that's been the big thing that happened in 2019, 2020 is look, your food choices really matter when it comes to the, the environment and, and you have the, the, the power to choose with, with, you know, with, with your wallet and, and the choices that you, you make. And also by supporting different causes, by voting both with your wallet and in the polls as well. Mm -hmm. So I think this increased consumer awareness has also led to the trends that we're seeing now, you know, the, the shift towards plant and cell-based, well, plant-based meat is, is the, 
what we're seeing has been coming up. The alternative space has has grown massively with you know Beyond Meat's success in 2020. Their their IPO speaks for itself. Beyond an impossible lead in this space, but there's a lot of different smaller players that are they're making the way. It's getting more and more crowded with alternatives that are working on everything from plant-based meats to dairy to eggs, you know, pork, everything you can think of. There, you know, there's alternatives coming out there. And there's new types of ingredients for, you know, even for for milk, it's no longer just soy, it's you know, oats, it's hemp, it's chickpeas. There's a whole range of different types of products for whatever people are looking for and whatever nutritional, uh, you know, selection they, they want. So the plant-based sector is one to watch. There's more investors in there. There's more funding into there. There's, there's more products and startups going into there and more support as well. Accelerators, everything in the space is, is growing. And I think just the stat, I mean, the alternative meat market is meant to grow to 85 billion by 2030. So that's just an idea. Cell-based meat is, is something that's, I think this week, particularly important that we talk about because this week, I don't know when your listeners will listen to this, but it's the week that Eat Just just got approval to sell their cell-based chicken in, in Singapore. And this is a, a massive milestone for the cultured meat industry as a whole. It doesn't mean that we'll be seeing cell-based meats on our plates in, in, in you know the next year. It's still going to take a long time to roll out. And Josh Tetrick, the founder of and CEO of Eat Just, said, you know, it's probably going to take 15 more years till it's something as um, available as Coca-Cola on everyone's plates. And as there was, so it's still a while a while is a way out. But there's a lot of different players that are entering this this space. Mm. And the the company, sorry, it's called Eat Just, or what's the name of the company? Eat Just. They do mostly plant-based eggs. But they're also working on, on a cell-based chicken under a, other, a different brand. I can't remember the name of the brand right now, but they'll be launching it in Singapore. Since we talked about the trends and the, yeah, definitely plant-based and, and meat alternatives are huge. Is there some other innovation you see happening that doesn't get that much press coverage? And but you still think is worth highlighting, especially maybe because it's a bit under the radar. Is there anything that comes to mind? Well, I think some other major trends that are happening is transparency and traceability. So three, one, two ones that I think have grown as a result of coronavirus is the transparency and traceability as consumers want to know more where their food's coming from. And that's resulting in solutions that bring more light to the, the supply chain of where people's products are coming from or on a more simple level are just giving rise to more local grown produce. So solutions like Farmy, solutions like Crisp in, in Netherlands, where consumers can order food from their local area rather than having it imported from, you know, who knows how far and, and untraceable sources. Another one would be food as medicine or functional foods. Now that people are entering the space where they, they want to take their health into their own hands and they want to boost their immune system, they're looking for foods that can help them with that. What's important to look for in the space, I think, is foods that are clinically proven or foods that are using ingredients that you know, are backed by evidence. So there's a lot of claims out there and it's important to, to cut through the noise and, and find the right ones. Another interesting space would be personalized supplements. There's companies like Bayes. Bayes was originally founded by a 
a founder from Zurich, but they moved the company to, to the US. They are doing some interesting stuff in personalized nutrition, and they even are doing personalized meals soon. So they're a company to watch in the space. What we're going to be seeing more of is personalized meals based on your microbiome. So, you know, each one of us, if we all ate ideally to our personal microbiome, we'd be eating something completely different depending on where we are in the world and, and what's, what our surroundings are like. If we ate like this, we would be performing at our optimal. But in order to find solutions that work like this in scale, it's been quite hard. There's personalized nutrition apps. Another Swiss one to watch would be MixFit. MixFit makes beverages, personalized nutrition beverages and, and which you can put on your desk, but, you know, getting it really into the, as a meal or getting it as a meal kit or, or getting it in your restaurant. That's something that I think people are trying to work on, but it's difficult to scale. And probably the last one I'd say is sustainable packaging, you, you know, packaging and plastic waste has been, you've seen all the videos over on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. It's one that people care a lot about. And just this week, Diego announced that they want to become net zero carbon by 2030, and they want to change all their packaging to 100% recyclable, reusable, compostable. Nestle announced this week that they plan to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050. And PepsiCo also have committed to using recyclable plastic by 2022. There is definitely so much happening uh, in the space and it's a very exciting time if, if you, I think, are an entrepreneur in the space or if you're interested in the space and want to try out new things. I, I believe every day there's like something, almost it feels like every day something new kind of being released. Yeah, so very exciting time. So I will move to the rapid fire questions, which I typically say for last, just to get your, you know, quick thoughts on, on what you think. So first question is like, what would be a book that had a really big personal impact on you or your thinking? Is there anything that you would recommend? Shoe Dog. Why? Just because of the grind and the hustle. I think it was summarized perfectly. Yeah, that's Phil Knight, right? Yeah, okay. And since you're in the food tech space, is there any, you know, favorite product you have or like a, a, a startup, which product you tested lately that you are really, you know, that you really like or obsessed with? I don't like to pick out favorites from the ones that we see, but I can just say I'm really interested by the alternative protein space and the companies that are there. There's a lot to come. In short, I would say any product that we feature on the discovery board is a product that I think is worth taking another look at. So if you know you could restart your entrepreneurial journey, are there any lessons or takeaways you would tell yourself when you were younger or when you got started? Yeah, well, I think one is you don't need to have a clear vision from the beginning. Some people really do. Some people, especially in the food tech industry, have a very clear idea of where they want to go and what they're working on and what their mission is in life. Not everyone has that. Not everyone wakes up every day knowing what they want to do. And that's okay you can figure it out for the beginning. And as long as you're using this time while you're figuring it out to gain your skill set or, or learn something, don't just sit around wasting it. And building upon that learning doesn't have to mean in the traditional sense, courses or academia. You can also learn that through internships at companies that you really believe in. Even if you're doing it for free or even if you're doing it for very cheap, not that I recommend that you know but it's a great way to get some experience into a field that you want to pursue or, or just interested in and one thing for swiss entrepreneurs would be 
be a bit more bold in communication. I, I think when I first came here, I, I was surprised by how it was a bit more reserved than London and, and the US where I was from, uh, where I lived in before. And it, it toned myself, I toned myself down as well to, to fit in. And only recently I've started you know, really bringing it out and, and communicating the way I, I truly am. And people resonate. People want to hear from different personalities. You've seen the success of multiple different profiles. Greg Logan is a great example, a Swiss guy who has an active LinkedIn profile. Don't feel the need to do what everyone else is doing because that's the way you've been raised or that's the way the culture is, you know, open up a little bit and, and share some stuff on LinkedIn, post some stuff here. And if no one resonates with it, who cares? Post it tomorrow, post it the day after, post it the day after, and eventually it'll, it'll hit an audience. Thanks for saying that. I mean, being Swiss myself, I, I know how the culture is here. So it's definitely more reserved. And I would also, you know, encourage people to try out more things. In the end, no one really cares. Most people, they care about themselves and they think about themselves most of the day. They don't really care what you're doing. The last question as well is uh, related to the name of the podcast. What does courage mean to you personally in the context of, of life or entrepreneurship? Mm, that's a good question. There's a quote that I heard from uh, a friend who said, get to 51% on a decision and stick to it. And I think that's what I, what I try to live by. So when, when it comes to an important decision, make it to 51% certainty and, and don't look back. And it, that's what I've done up to now. And it's got me this far. And that's what I'm going to keep doing moving forward. That's some great closing words. Thank you very much, Arman, for coming on the podcast. And before we close, are there any, you know, last words or things you wanted to say to the audience? You can also share, of course, where they can find you online. Yeah, definitely. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. You can connect with me on email, arman at foodact.global. If you're working on food or food tech startup, you know, the best way that I can help is, is uh, one, you can try joining a local meetup in your city. We do them all around. Two, you can put your product on our discovery board and we'll promote it everywhere that we can. Uh, we love to push products in front of our audience. And if there's anything I can help with, let me know. Personally, nothing really. I'll be hopefully just you know working on some different stuff in the coming weeks and we'll have some exciting announcements coming up in the coming months. I'll keep it as secretive as that. Okay, sounds exciting. I guess then stay tuned. And I will also make sure to link to everything in the show notes so people can check it out there as well and get directly to your website. Thank you so much again, Arman, and wishing you continuing success and all the best. Thanks for inviting me on. Enjoyed it. Hey, before you go, I just want to ask you for a very small favor. If you get any value out of this podcast, please quickly head over to the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you are listening to this and give the Leap Takers podcast a positive rating. It just takes 10 seconds. This would really help me to get more visible and I'll be able to continuously bring on great guests to this show. If you want to do even more, you can now easily donate something to support with the costs of this podcast. Just go to leaptakers.com and you see a coffee mug at the bottom of the page. If you click on it, you can donate a small amount, as much as you want, like buying me a coffee, which helps me to cover the costs of this podcast like hosting, editing tools, etc. Thank you so much. As always, if you have any feedback or want to get in touch, just shoot me a message. You can find all my contact info as well as all social channels on leaptakers.com. Thanks again for listening and until next time. Bye-bye.